0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Typhoon Talks, brought to you by Typhoon Consulting, a boutique management consultancy headquartered in Hong Kong. I'm David Powell, the Asia-Pacific CEO, and today I'm joined by Elsie, Martin, and Becky. Hello. 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 Um, so this month, um, we're going to be very heavily focused on politics. Um, so we're going to start off by having a look at the um, the G7 or the G6 plus one, depending on how you look at it, and the Singapore summit between um, Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un and another episode of the North Korea soap opera. Um, We're then going to head slightly north um, into Malaysia to talk about the Malaysian elections um, in terms of some regime change there and what that means for both the Malaysians and also um, more broadly around Southeast Asia. Um, And then we're going to go to another Um, country with a a few issues, which is Italy, so we're going to move over to Europe, and and Elsie's going to give us, um, hopefully, a brief synopsis in in terms of uh, what's happened in in Italy and what that means, not just for Italy, but uh, more broadly for Southern Europe and also for the EU in general. So, Becky, with no further ado, let's crack on and and get on to the G7 and Singapore summit. So, it has been very busy for Donald Trump, he's done a lot of travel, cropped up a lot of air miles in Air Force One. And... What's he been up to? What are the implications and what does it mean for all of us?
1: So Trump started at the very beginning of the month so he could pack in maximum disruption. Um, So (laughs) (laughs) on the 1st of June, he imposed tariffs on metals from the EU, Canada and Mexico. He justified it by saying it was in the US's national security because it's well known that your allies are always waiting to literally cause the collapse of your country through corrupted steel. Uh, Trump then showed up late to the G7 and then left early so he didn't have to talk about climate change. He then engaged in a very personal Twitter spat with Trudeau. And by the time he arrived in Singapore for the first ever meeting between a US president and the leader of North Korea, tensions with European leaders were high. He then spent 45 minutes with Kim Jong-un. They apparently formed this amazing bond, which has been unparalleled in uh, the history of international relations. The agreement they signed is really bland. But as with the G7 and the communique that Trump signed there. um, It didn't sign. Or didn't sign, <laughs> and he then threw some serious curveballs to his allies in the press conference afterwards.
0: So, a, let's look at the G7 first. Then, so um, the G7 is the richest country, richest countries on earth. It's generally um, they get together, have a bit of a chat, slap each other on the back, and go, "Well done, guys." Uh, but this this feels very different. This feels as though there's some real tension. Um, as you said, you know, he, he arrived late, left early. Um, he's really annoyed Merkel. He's really annoyed Trudeau. Um, pretty much, and he's you know, slapped tariffs on everybody. Is, is does this going to continue the sort of the U.S. isolationist approach? What, what, does, what does it mean?
1: I think definitely isolationist approach, and I think it's I think it is new. It, it's a departure. I think he's really gone from just disagreeing with his allies to actively undermining them. Um, you know, I don't know of any other world leader who's. <laughs> gone and made an agreement with everyone and then walked out and torn it to shreds you yeah. know and in such a short time and so publicly I think it really has crossed the line.
0: Where did the G7 go, go, go from here because as you said he's you know he's, he's a very diverse personality he's <laughs> you know trying to isolate the US from everyone else does, does this mean the G, G7 uh, you know it, it, its future threatened can it come back from this or is it just going to be a question we'll ride it out and once Trump's out of the way we'll, we'll get back to business as usual?
1: I think just because of how interconnected all of these countries are, I really wouldn't be surprised if Trump isn't re-elected, if, if you know, the US makes some public overtures, they apologise for their hiatus with Trump and things go back to business as normal. But I think there have been some really strong messages from European leaders. You know, Macron went into the summit saying that a G6 plus one solution wouldn't be necessarily a bad thing, mm-hmm. and that he'd be very happy with that. Um, You know, Merkel and Trudeau have really outspokenly said they'd be very happy to work out international agreements without Trump. Um, And, you know, I think Trump really is playing America first. He's, um, particularly with the tariffs around the WTO, he's just disregarding it, going against it. He's been blocking the election of judges to their panel for appeals, um, which is now only half full because he keeps saying no when people are proposed. Um, And by justifying his tariffs as being about national security, he's basically played it so the WTO can't challenge them. Um, because if you create case law where countries can't impose tariffs for national security, other countries can't do so for places like Russia and China, which no one, I think, is willing to risk.
0: So basically, it's wait and see. Um, yeah, I think so. all friends It's a question of whether... They're there's enough back channeling behind the scenes to so make sure it either comes back together as a G7 or a G6 plus one.
1: Yeah, I think short term we can probably expect much more of a G6 plus one type outcome, especially just around the fact that there's no sign of Trump ending his tariffs, and there's quite a lot of signs of everyone else imposing tariffs back on the U.S. You know, they've all announced they're targeting whiskey or soybeans or something, yeah. and I think they, because the US is one country that is the target of all tariffs, their economy could suffer a lot more, whereas all the other countries can just switch their US trade to each other and probably be okay.
0: Yeah, exactly. And so, so then let's look at the pivot to, to Asia for, for Donald yeah. Trump. He then sort of heads off to, to Sentosa, the lovely mm-hmm. tropical island just off Singapore, and spends 45 minutes with his best Korean buddy. Um, what does this mean?
1: So they didn't really achieve anything. The agreement is very bland. It just commits them to uh, complete nuclear disarmament. It is a significant de-escalation. I mean, South Korea especially has had a very relieved response because if you think back to where we were a few months ago, um, it did look like there could be a nuclear war. So mm. it's a big success in that way. But similarly to the G7, you know, a bland agreement was... This one was signed. You know, there was no question about whether it was signed, unlike the G7 communique. Um, But he then went to the press conference and threw out some curveballs. So he's saying he's gonna stop playing war games in South Korea without alerting any of his allies before. Um, And you know, a lot, again, he's gonna save the US money by retracting US military presence in Asia. Again, all up in the air, we don't really know, but it looks like for now, Kim and China have done very well out of this arrangement. yeah, the summit couldn't really have gone much better for North Korea. They haven't really committed to anything but they've got some pretty good concessions like the military stuff from Trump.
0: And so what does you know, what do we think the you know, this is you know, for everybody listens to this podcast on a monthly basis, we always seem to have um, a, a you know a session on, on North Korea. You know, what you know, if we look roll forward for another four, four weeks to when we do have this you know similar conversation in July, what do we think we're gonna be talking about for North Korea and, 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 and Kim then?
1: I mean, we can hopefully say that there'll be an agreed plan, right? And denuclearization will be progressing. Um, I think probably we'll have some really more fun bits of Trump trying to explain how well he knows science and how denuclearization <laughs> works. Uh, we can live in hope. Uh, but I think it's quite likely previous agreements like this have been reached by Trump, uh, Kim's grandfather and father, and they've basically used them to extort money. Um, you know, We've said before, we think Kim is opening up to the rest of the world because he's bankrupt. Yep. Um, or just wants more money, who knows. Um, they've used it, they've said, we won't have another meeting if you don't provide X billion in aid and then it's gone straight in their pockets. So I don't think we should rule out at all that happening again. Okay.
0: So you've brought up corruption, money going into people's pockets. It sounds like a good time to talk about Malaysia. So um, Martin, we've just had um, you know, elections in Malaysia. We've had um, a change of regime after a very long period of time of single party rule. Give us a little bit of the background, the personalities involved, um, what are going to be the consequences for each of them, and what does it mean for Malaysia, and probably a little bit more about what it means for Southeast Asia, and any impact on the the rest of the world.
2: Okay, so what we've seen in Malaysia has been pretty unprecedented in its post-colonial history. The uh, Barisan Nationale, the coalition that has just lost the election, has been in power since 1957, um, and they've just lost to the Pakatan Harapan, the Alliance of Hope um, which was being led by none other than Malaysia's long-serving Prime Minister Matahir Mohamad and um, their jailed opposition leader Anwar Ibrahim who are the two kind of personalities at the centre of this election and it is a very kind of personal story.
0: But they've all been involved in Malaysian politics for a very very long time haven't they? Yes, so Matahir Mohamad
2: first, first became Prime Minister in 1981, Anwar was his deputy before Matahir had him jailed in 1998. Um, only to now, 20 years later, have him pardoned by the king. Um, and Najib, was, who's just lost the election, was Matahir's hand-picked um, protege who was going to lead Malaysia into a new golden age until the um, highly publicised corruption scandal, um, the 1MDB scandal, as it's known, um, which was an a, a investment company that was set up by the Malaysian government to attract foreign investment. Um, into Malaysia to um, work on various infrastructure projects. It didn't do very, didn't do a very good job at attracting foreign investment. but Instead, was very good at borrowing money and wrapped up huge debts. Um, and a lot of this money that was borrowed, around 3.5 to 4.5 billion, seems to have gone into the pockets of Malaysian officials, including it's quite a
0: high margin of error. Yes, a very <laughs> high
2: margin of error, including um, uh, Najib, who's said to have pocketed, uh, allegedly, according to the U.S. Pro- pop- prosecutors, pocketed somewhere around $681 million, although he claims it was a, um, just a donation from a unnamed Saudi Arabian prince. Because we all get those, don't we? Um, well, good friends. <laughs> good friends. <laughs> so um, that and that scandal, in fact, um, damaged Malaysia's reputation on the world stage and incensed here enough to, act, to take the reins, the political reins, once again. And do a complete 180 and take charge of the um, opposition, yep. which I think very few people uh, in 1998 and certainly even probably two years ago could have predicted. Yep. Um, so, but this this that's only really part of the story. As with most elections, it comes down to the economy, and um, there's been growing economic dissatisfaction in Malaysia for a long time. The economy itself is um, doing quite well. It's at a three-year high but the cost of living has been rising. um, And that's been blamed in part by many Malaysians to the goods and services tax introduced by uh, Najib and the Barisan National in 2015. And this taxes products at every stage in the production process. Um, and it's a very wide-ranging tax and levied, uh, levied 6% on most transactions in, um, and products in Malaysia. So it's just created massive price inflation? Yes, yeah, so it's created massive price inflation that has been felt by um, the poorest in Malaysia. Yep. And the idea behind this tax was to make the Malaysian government's budget less susceptible to fluctuations in oil prices, which um, I think international observers seems to have agreed with that when the oil prices dropped in 2015, um, the uh, Malaysian government wrote that out pretty well compared to a lot of other governments. But um, now that oil prices are at a high, um, the, kind of the reason behind this tax is being questioned more and more and the opposition um, very much capitalized on this and said that they would um, pretty much from day one zero the tax and reintroduce the old sales and services tax which had been in Malaysia for decades, which was um, although higher on some um, on sales, was levied on a much a narrower range of products, so didn't have as much of an impact on low and middle income Malaysians. And this move in particular, and this promise, along with reintroducing subsidies on fuel, um, has proved very, very popular, and is probably one of the main reasons that the opposition, in fact, um, managed to win. So they the
0: they bought the election promises effectively.
2: Well, it's um, a tried and tested method method in Malaysia <laughs> to. Um, yeah, and, um, and other countries as well. <laughs> and other countries as well, not to single out Malaysia. Um, but it's tried and tested tactic to promise um, large subsidies and pay increases. The Barisan Nationale has been accused has been accused of, been accused of essentially bribery, where, um, for example, they've uh, promised to increase civil service um, uh, pensions and um, salaries just before elections, as well as target subsidies to you know their kind of states where they have a high um, voting base. Um, So the Pakistan Harapan has, I think, finally possibly Cotton on, made the most of um, these promises while the oil prices are high and they can actually deliver them. Um, I think going forward, um, how they're going to replace the GST with a modern tax that can also make their budget less susceptible to oil price fluctuation will be interesting. And, And how they're going to actually attract foreign investment and make Malaysia a good place to do business um, because the Saint-Nationale, despite all their flaws, did have a reputation for um, attracting um, foreign investment yeah. and being open to Chinese as well as Western and Japanese investment. So these are all questions that I'm sure we'll see played out over yeah. the next um, two years.
0: And we've got three pretty elderly gentlemen in play at the moment. What does this mean for sort of succession planning and stability in I mean less the, the economy more in the politics uh, for, for Malaysia going forwards?
2: So here, um is now, I think, the oldest world leader in the world. Um, he, at a grand age of ninety-two, and he's older than the Queen. Older than the Queen. He's promised to hand over the reins to Anwar in once two years. Yep. Um, and this, I think, if this didn't happen, that would be another very dramatic turn. Um, and from my point of view and from what I've read seems highly unlikely as Anwar is incredibly popular. Is an incredibly popular figure mm. and is probably the only man after Matahir who could keep the coalition together yeah. and continue governing. So I think this that that move is highly likely. The powerful combination that is Anwar and Matahir is made so powerful because Malaysia is a country that's very much divided along ethnic lines, yeah. and people very much vote along ethnic lines. There are political parties that specifically target um, those ethnic demographics of Malay, Chinese, Indian, um, and other. Keeping and keeping that kind of coalition together um, is going to be incredibly important. So Anwar tradition and the opposition traditionally have been much more um, favoured by the Chinese um, and the Indians and young urban Malaysians, whereas Mata here with his kind of um, Credentials of being uh, being the man that put Malaysia on the map and being seen as a real champion for Malay Muslim rights. Um, he's managed to attract um, a lot of rural Malays as well as urban Malays, and, and really, they, they're calling it the matter here effect, was what kind of swung uh, or caused enough, enough of the swing to get the opposition into power and uh, trigger the Malaysian tsunami where all the major ethnic groups came out and voted against the yeah, so,
0: so basically, we're saying within two years, we, as long as, from an economic perspective, everything's stable, we should expect to see a an orderly transition of power within Malaysia. I guess, and from from the governing party's perspective now, is that they will want to create another dynasty in the way that the three elderly gentlemen have previously... they want
2: to leave their mark on Malaysia, and matter yeah. is a man who... Very much left his mark on Malaysia and is seen as, like I say, the man who put Malaysia on the map. And yeah. I'm sure he'll want to do that again. Yeah. And he'll see Anwar, I think, as the kind of his rightful successor. Yeah. And want to continue the um, kind of dominance of the Pakistan Harapan. How they capitalize on that and how they and how they keep that is going to be, I think, um, very dependent on the economy. Yeah. Um, and making sure they continue to attract kind of, um, especially Chinese investment. Um, as, uh, but at the same time um, keep the West happy.
0: So it seems like a good time to switch continents and, and go to Italy uh, where we've got regime change of, a, of another sort. But give us a little bit of an overview of, of what's happened in Italy and uh, and why it's important in the broader European context.
3: There was an election and it produced um, no greater majority. The largest party, um, the Five Star Movement, which is a populist, anti-establishment, uh, catch-all party one. They started looking for allies um, around the political spectrum. Um, after a lot of negotiations, um, they found their best friends, the League, which is right-wing. Due to these very complicated negotiations that took place between um, M5S and the rest of the parties, um, there was a lot of talk of re-election. And since both M5S and the League um, are very Eurosceptic, Xbox saw it as um, that another election would basically be a hidden referendum on the Euro. Yeah. Um, therefore, wasn't majorly popular with the other parties who aren't Eurosceptic and would very much like to stay in both the EU and the Eurozone. So when they proposed the first um, government, um, the president vetoed it because of the chosen Minister of Finance, which was supposed to be Paolo Savona. Very, very, very Eurosceptic.
0: So we, so we are seeing a polarisation in Italy. We're not seeing everybody's pro-Europe, it's just different factions. We're de- definitely seeing polarisation of pro-European and Eurosceptic. Probably definitely. more along a UK lines.
3: Yes, um, I would definitely say. I think that's a trend you can see in the whole European Union. Um, it's, uh, there's a lot of Euroscepticism cropping up in a ton of EU countries, um, especially following the Brexit vote. So really, it's the coming year that we will have this government in Italy. We'll see. Could be a month, could be <laughs> a full term, who knows.
0: I don't think anybody's served a full term, have they? In terms of. Uh, of I actually Italy. don't
3: know, but that's interesting. <laughs> what is really troubling, um, according to me at least, is the new policy. They want to go through with some major ta- tax cuts. And um, previously, the income tax has been between twenty-three and about forty-five percent. And the new government has decided that they want flat rates on fifteen and twenty percent. Sales tax worth. 12.5 billion euro has also been cancelled. Universal basic income is the new idea. 17 billion euros. This is pretty smart, actually, out of a keep-holding-on-to-power um, level. Since eight, 18 million people are um, on risk of poverty in Italy, and that's about a third of the population. And yeah.
0: presumably be most of those are in southern Italy as well. So universal basic income is, is a great idea, but to,
3: keep power, to, but well, to keep power
0: but, if you, if it, but you, the it's got to be funded right so yes. if, you, if you then if you've got, then got a flat rate of 15 t- 15% and 20% and if you've gone from a progressive tax, taxation regime you, you've then got to assume that you've got a, a growing national income to generate tax revenue to pay for the universal income yeah. D- presumably the, the budget doesn't balance
3: well funny that you mention it um, the debt is around 132 percent of their GDP, which is the second highest debt in the EU after Greece. And I wouldn't really. That, that's not that's not the real power, is it? Don't, Don't it them last, <laughs> doesn't it? Don't compare yourself <laughs> to Greece. Um, so a lot of experts are like go like leave the E like leave the euro like just do it. But if he, if, G- if that
0: happened though, there'd be a massive devaluation in. Whatever Italian currency there there was, which would then massively inflate the size of the debt, which then leads you into massive you economic start downturn. Start over with
1: a communist state. Well, yeah. you know
0: <laughs> that that you know that has happened there before. It doesn't seem to me that you know Italy is. Is doing things you know, from a strategic perspective, like all the things you talked about, is yeah. It's very we're throwing out stuff to specific parts of the population to make them to make them say yes. This is like with the with the, with the British government getting the um, uh, Democratic Unionists in, in involved by going, well, we're just going to give you a whole load of money for Northern Ireland. Mm-hmm. You're basically buying yeah. support.
3: Yeah, that, that's that's exactly what's going on. And what is really really interesting is that. Um, a lot of these issues have nothing to do with the euro. They are also uh, scrapping the plan that would raise the pension age in incrementally.
0: So does that mean the pension age will stay the same?
3: Yeah. So which basically, is basically is massively
0: inflating your liabilities in mm.
1: the long
3: term. Ev- everything. So
1: if, um, if Italy does introduce the universal basic income, do you think they will be evicted from the euro? Yeah,
3: maybe. Maybe.
0: It doesn't sound like it's affordable. I mean, the thing no. the universal income, and also I think once you know and there have been pilots of universal basic income in very small Mm. communities like measured in thousands of people I think if you were to take it to a country the size of Italy once you implement it it's something that is going to be very very hard to to take take back Um, and then if 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 you're then stuck you know, if you if you if you, if you provided massive tax cuts to the majority of the tax-paying population, in order to give, I mean, it is almost communist. It is yeah. a massive redistribution. Yeah, I um, can't imagine Germany it, standing I've, for it. No, I don't know
1: how quickly. You can coincide the, I mean, we've seen I mean, with, with Britain, right? You can't easily coincide leaving a union alongside introducing your own policies. No, and I, I would think
0: if you, you're going to very quickly blow up the budget deficit mm-hmm. um, and then the Germans are going to be very unhappy with that because basically they're going to fund it. It's, <laughs> it's going to be interesting. Well, I mean, Elsie, thank you very much for that. And also thank you very much to, to Becky and Martin. I think we've had a, a very good tour of some, some very interesting um, political um, events. So basically... The, the cycle with Donald Trump is measured in months. Uh, if we're looking at Malaysia, it's a couple of years, and Italy, who knows? But that's all for today. Um, thank you, everyone. Uh, follow us on Twitter at Typhoon Buzz and on iTunes and SoundCloud at Typhoon Talks for more podcast episodes. Also, please visit our website at TyphoonConsulting.com for more industry points of view. We hope you'll join us again next time. Goodbye.